Hi, Fadi. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Good. It's good to connect with you again. How Same are you? Same here. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio, po audio podcast. You're Fadi Karan. You are, uh, I guess I might describe you as a Palestinian activist. You're on the, the West Bank right now. Uh, now, you're, uh, your, your Twitter handle these days says that you're, or your Twitter bio says you're associated with Avaz, the kind of online activist thing, A-V-A-A-Z. You're a campaign director there or something? Yeah, I'm a I'm a campaigns director at Avaz. It's it's you know it's a global civic movement with about 68 million members around the world. Mm -hmm. And the idea is how do you mobilize people online and offline to impact you know politics and to also do fundraising and help people in need in kind of urgent situations like the Rohingya um, and elsewhere. Okay. Well, there's some politics going on where you are right now, among other things, uh, and. Maybe to set this up, uh, I mean, for those people who just aren't familiar with the geography uh, of the Middle East, you know, what they've been hearing about is uh, exchanges uh, of fire uh, between Gaza and Israel. Uh, Gaza is one of the two Palestinian territories. You're in the, the, the other main one, the West Bank. Uh, the difference, well, the West Bank is formally occupied by Israeli soldiers uh, the soldiers withdrew from Gaza some years ago, but Gaza is still subject to a blockade, uh, which Israel justifies as uh, being, a, you know, denying, I guess, uh, the ingredients to make weapons or something, but, but also has broader economic impact. And, uh, and uh, so anyway, Gaza is what people have been hearing about, but uh, at the same time, this is something that I'm sure is, first of all, impacting the consciousness of uh, Palestinians in the West Bank. And in fact, although this has been barely reported, a number of Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank, right? Uh, that, that in some way associated with all this, is that right? Yeah, I mean, so far in the last week, it's with today, 15 people in the West Bank have been killed, mostly people killed during protests. Um, I'm actually going to the hospital right after the conversation we're having right here because three people from uh, the protests that uh, I and others helped organize uh, were killed. And so we're going to go and see exactly, you know, how we can help their families. Um, they were shot by Israeli soldiers. And I think just one thing to add, kind of, Bob, because I think it's, you know, for, for usually for the American audience, they like look at the region, they look at Israel-Palestine, and they see it as a cycle of uh, violence, but it's actually not a cycle, it's a spiral. And that spiral starts from the kind of persecution and oppression of the Palestinian people, which Human Rights Watch just called apartheid recently and which is considered crimes against humanity. And actually the, you know, although Gaza and you know the rocket fire between Gaza and Israel now is the core kind of focus of the international media, where it all started was Jerusalem and the neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah. Um, that's about to be where, where there are Palestinian families that are about to be basically ethnically cleansed from the area. Yeah, so that's a, uh, yeah, in, in the days preceding the actual exchange of fire, uh, that was kind of one of the hot spots. So this is a, 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 a neighborhood in East Jerusalem. And, and to provide further background, East Jerusalem 
you know, like the West Bank uh, was was not uh, uh, part of Isra- Israeli territory uh, prior to the 1967 war. That's one thing that it has in common with Gaza, with West Bank. Um, and um, so there, there are Palestinian families living there uh, who have been there since, I guess, around 1948. Those homes have been in Palestinian hands. And uh, they've been, uh, Israel, Israel has been trying to evict them. The case was about to reach the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, there was supposed to be a Supreme Court ruling on that Monday, I guess, a week ago uh, yesterday. Uh, and that was one reason there had been demonstrations. But the, uh, the Supreme Court suspended the, the release of that ruling, I guess, right? Yeah, they they suspended it. And this is, you know, we we like, we, you know, a truth I think that's important is people always, you know, use the kind of cliche term divide and conquer. And I think the, the big picture here is that the Palestinians are divided in so many ways, right? Geographically, you have West Bank, Gaza, Palestinians in Israel, Palestinians um, abroad, East Jerusalem. And you also have within, you know, Palestinian politics, a division between political parties. But to speak about, you know, Sheikh Jarrah and why it united all of those factions, right? This is the the tipping point. The thing that's different about the protests and about all the resistance you're seeing now is that this neighborhood and Jerusalem united everyone in Palestine and kind of sidelined those divisions is because... The story is very symbolic of the Palestinian cause. So here's what happened, right? Palestinians in 1948, those that lived on the west side of Jerusalem are pushed out. You know, there is a massacre that occurs in a village called Deir Yassin. Palestinians are pushed out from areas in West Jerusalem towards East Jerusalem. Now, some families are given... Can I, can I just first... step in and provide what I hope yeah, is yeah. accurate background? Tell me if it's not. But in 1948, so Israel was created uh, by the United nations in 1948 there was conflict over over that basically between jews and arabs in the middle east broadly there were areas where uh jews were pushed out of arab areas there were areas where where uh arabs were pushed out of um jewish areas the original uh mandate for israel did not include even west jerusalem but in 19 uh, during the conflict of 48 israel the boundaries in effect expanded and it was during that period that you're talking about Arabs being kicked out of West Jerusalem. Is is that right? Do I have all that right, kind of? Yeah, pretty okay. much. The, the the one thing I would add there is also just the and you know this is this is always one of the challenges with talking about this is how deeply we go back in history. But I think you know one of the actual original sins uh, was the in 1917 the Belfort Declaration. This declaration by the British that said, basically, we're going to give the Jewish people a homeland in Palestine. And what happened was, you know, the British had the mandate, they kind of were, you know, the colonial power in Palestine from, uh, you know, after World War One, all the way to 1947, basically. And then the British said, we're going to pull out. And the UN had a plan that was the partition plan that basically sought to divide the land equally between both sides. But what happened was, you know, Israel then declared its independence. But for Palestinians, a majority of which during that time actually lived on the land that, you know, was supposed to be partitioned to be Israeli land. Uh, the Palestinians said, we don't want this land to be partitioned. But, you know, three religions can live here. 
but this should be one nation. And that led to war between Israel and the Arabs. And that's where we get to this point. Jerusalem in the UN plan was supposed to be, as you said, this kind of like international kind of bubble, you know, safe zone. But Israel took parts of it during during the war in 1948. And it was also Israel during that war in 1948 that was built up to by kind of British policies that Israel uh, basically displaced, kind of removed over 700,000 Palestinians from their homes, either violently, there were, you know, some, some massacres and villages attacked, or people out of fear, many, you know, hundreds of thousands of people saw some of the massacres and decided to leave. And that's where you get the, like, Al-Kurd family, for example, and others that we kind of, you know, had were pushed out of West Jerusalem during that year and ended up in East Jerusalem. Okay, and so the way Palestinians would phrase the the kind of grievances like, wait a second, on the one hand, Israel, you're saying that Palestinians can't reclaim homes in West Jerusalem that were inhabited by Palestinians prior to 1948, but you want uh, Jews to reclaim homes in East Jerusalem that were inhabited by Jews prior to 1948. And and, and that's the asymmetry that uh, is at issue here, I, I guess. Yeah, I mean that's the that's the broken logic, right? If you are what you know, if you are Israeli, Israeli Jewish in, in specific, then you can go and make a claim and write this claim that the land, so what some of the settler groups, the Israeli settler groups are claiming is that the land in Sheikh Jarrah, where these families live on, previously before 1948, belonged to Jews. Now, we, we have yet to see any kind of clear evidence of that. But, you know, what happened in, in 1952 was that the UN and the Jordanian government, which governed East Jerusalem at the time, they basically told these families, hey, we're going to give you, you know, houses and we're going to allow you to live on this land because it's state land. Now, the, the challenge here is whether it's true or not that the land where these Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah live right now did or did not belong to Jews prior to 1948. Those same families cannot go to the land that belonged to them that they were removed from prior to 1948 and say, we want to go back here. This is legally ours. So that's the discrimination here. One side is, is allowed to make those claims, sometimes even can take homes illegally with false claims, whereas one side is legally prevented from claiming something that was theirs. Okay. So so just to quickly move from the Sheikh Jarrah issue, kind of chronologically to the current uh, conflict. So there was protests surrounding that to begin with. There was that form of restlessness. Uh, and then uh, Israeli authorities did some things that Palestinians considered provocations. We needn't go through them all, but kind of the one that Apparently, Hamas deemed to have crossed the red line was uh, sending, I guess, either police or soldiers into Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, you know, the most sacred mosque in Jerusalem, one of the most sacred mosques in all of Islam, um, and, and, you know, with weapons, firing rubber bullets and, and all of this and, and that. And a lot of observers, even, uh, you know, uh, American conservative observers, I've heard say, yeah, it was kind of predictable that if you do that, uh, trouble would start. In any event... That triggered the rocket fire. Uh, Israel is, you know, has responded uh, disproportionately and it has reasons it articulates for doing that. It says it's necessary to 
sustained deterrence. But anyway, here we are. And, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, curious about, uh, you know, the Palestinian landscape here, because we're not hearing much about the West Bank. Now, we have heard about one kind of new development, which is the strife within Israel that, you know, that is, for example, in the in the town of, uh, I, I guess, Lodz is the Jewish uh, term for it or, or something, and it's called maybe something else by Arabs. But it's a, it's a bi-ethnic town with Arabs and Jews. There's been real conflict there. Uh, there and in other parts of Israel, this is, you know, uh, I think a lot of Israelis find scary. And this has not happened in the recent wars that in otherwise, in other ways might remind us of this one. We haven't had that kind of connection between what's going on in Gaza and what's going on within inside of Israel. Now, what is your take on that? What, what is, why do you think it's different this time and what are the implications of that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting question. And that's something actually I and a lot of Palestinian friends in, you know, Lod and in Yafa and in Haifa have been discussing over the last couple of weeks. And I think it is, you know, one thing I want to go back to, because it's very interesting because it relates deeply to American politics, is that under under President Trump the Israel, and with his recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital and all that, basically the Israeli police, the Israeli government, began kind of feeling a new level of control over Jerusalem. So apart from the Sheikh Jarrah story, there was also, you know, Palestinians have certain areas in the old city where they congregate. And a month, you know, a month ago, Israel began pushing them out, began putting blockades. So essentially Palestinian presence in Jerusalem, and this was a big story, right, that was spreading in Palestinian society. Our presence in Jerusalem was being diminished and Israel has does have a plan, it's public, to actually decrease the presence of Palestinians in Jerusalem. In so both where, West where, and in both West, are you talking about West Jerusalem now? In, in, in East Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, you know, like the old city, there's the Damascus Gate. Palestinians right. usually congregate there, especially in Ramadan, the holy month. Suddenly the Israeli police began putting, um, you know, different roadblocks and stuff. Anyways, long story short, and this is, you know, this is how Gaza and kind of the communities in, in Lid and in Israel connect the Palestinian communities. You had this day, one of the holiest nights in Ramadan, and it coincided also with the day when the Israeli settlers, kind of the Israeli far right, the ethno-nationalists, celebrate the unification of Jerusalem, and they wanted to march through the old city. And the Israeli police was also, you know, Palestinians were staying in the mosque overnight. The Israeli police made the you know, mistake you spoke about. Over 250 people were injured. The mosque was desecrated. You know, trees were on fire. And Hamas then said, you know, it basically told the Israeli um, government, you have until 6 p.m. to stop doing what you're doing in Al-Aqsa Mosque or else we're going to fire rockets. At the same time, Palestinians living in Israel who can reach the Al-Aqsa Mosque, because I can't reach it, right? If you live in the West Bank or Gaza, you're, you can't reach it. But Palestinians in Israel, in Yaf and so forth, began you know, driving towards the Al-Aqsa Mosque, feeling this level of that it's in danger. And Israel put roadblocks to prevent you know, Palestinian Israelis, Palestinians with Israeli citizens, from getting to Al-Aqsa. And so all of this together coincides at a moment where 
Um, you know, whether you're Palestinian in Gaza, whether you are Hamas, whether you're Palestinian in Lod, you are trying to kind of protect this holy city from attack. And that then when the Israeli kind of military and police response escalated um, significantly, that's when you had all these communities, you know, start protesting. And then, and this is important, what happened in, in Lida and others is, you know, it's, I would compare it to, you know, when, when African-Americans go down to the street and, you know, kind of began to protest, some cases began to riot. Now, the Palestinians living in Israel in particular have been facing similar types of discrimination and racism to African-Americans in the U.S. And so they went to the streets. But in Israel, this was new. It had never happened previously that Palestinians felt this level of empowerment. So you had the settler kind of mobs, lynch mobs also come down to the street, leading to clashes and leading to violence. And that's where the spiral went up. But, you know, I'll end by saying one thing, Bob, which is what's what's kind of transformative and majestic of this moment, whether you're in the West Bank or Israel or Gaza as a Palestinian, is suddenly there's now kind of unity of action. Everyone feels united and kind of resisting and whether it's nonviolent action, whether it's going in the streets, whether it's people just putting flags on top of their house, there's a new sense of like uprising, I would say, on the street. And is that also reflected in the West Bank? In other words, are we seeing more activism and protests in the West Bank than we did say in the last Gaza-Israel war in, I think it was 2014? Oh, yes. You know, I would say the... You know, the general strike, there was a general strike announced today. I, I don't know if people have heard about it, but it was this idea that all Palestinians around the world, but mainly in, in historical Palestine and Israel would go on strike and not go to work. And for the first time, I would say in probably four to five decades, there was stellar compliance and commitment with the strike. If you walked into any Palestinian town or city, whether in the West Bank or Israel, Palestinian stores were shut. And in the West Bank in particular, there were also mass protests. Today, there were about 3,000 people in Ramallah, the first time I would say since the second Intifada, where this many people come to the street and march towards Israeli checkpoints. And that's where three people were, were killed today, where we started the call. But it wasn't just Was Ramallah. that today, the, the, the reason you're going to the hospital after that, these people were killed yeah. today? Today, yeah, just they, they, you know, two of them just passed away within the last two hours. Um, and, you know, the same thing happened, of course, not just in Ramallah. There were protests in Hebron, there, you know, with dozens of injured. There were protests in East Jerusalem, in Nablus, and basically almost 250 locations today had protests across the West Bank and, and within Israel. Now, why do you think it's different this time? Why is are we seeing the the kinds of activity in Israel proper by Palestinians and in West in the West Bank in synchrony with the Gaza conflict in a way that we haven't in the past? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's you know, I I don't want to speak too long because I can speak for days about this. But actually, if you go back to previous conversations you and I have had, Bob, where we spoke about you know organizing in the West Bank, where we spoke about the youth and their role, you know, we we started speaking I think about maybe eight uh, years ago, and within those eight years, there's just been a huge amount of organizing and suppression, right? Um, but there's now a new generation. Um, of Palestinians who are, number one, 
feel leaderless. Our political leadership, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority, and even leaders within you know Hamas and leaders of the Palestinian communities within Israel, like Ayman Ode, have not delivered. And so you have a new generation that's saying, we're not listening to these folks anymore. We're taking things into our own hands. And that's different. The general strike, the way it was built up to what it was today, wasn't by any of the political factions with power. So that's the difference, number one. Difference so number this is two- like a grassroots online thing? Is that the way this is organized? No, it's it's not necessarily online. It's um, and it's it's kind of organized. I would say horizontally through different uh, networks of people that know each other, um, but but across the different areas um, on that front. And you know, it it also includes like it's not just you know young people. It also includes some unions. It includes civil society. It includes. You know, the, the lawyers union, for example, was part of the calling for the general strike. So it's a it's a whole of society type of transformation that's happening. But the spark is being pushed by kind of a younger generation that's more willing to to challenge the status quo. But that's that's one reason. The other reason I would say is COVID-19. Um, what COVID-19 did to Palestinians is keep in mind, you know, the vaccine is maybe at I think of Palestinian society has been vaccinated. We're watching Israel get out of the pandemic, whereas people here are still dying. uh, People here are economically really deteriorating. And so that's, you know, there was a, a recent report by The Economist that stated every pandemic within one or two years after it, there's political instability and transformation. And I think we're beginning to see the, the starts of that in Palestine because it re it changed society a lot here. The, the third reason I would say is that, you know, and, and I think the most important reason is the weight of Israel's just oppression of the Palestinian people has continued to escalate in the last five years. And at the same time, nobody cares. You know, what what we've realized is, you know, is is President Joe Biden going to come protect us? Is von der Leyen of the EU going to come and, and protect Palestinian rights? Who, you know, is the UN, is Antonio Guterres? For many Palestinians, this idea that the international community is going to wake up has has dissipated. And so there's this also sense of it's it's either now or never, and it's either us or nobody. And so those are some of the factors that are playing into this. And do you think this is going to endure? In other words, do you think things are now permanently changed with a more kind of unified sense of political consciousness among Palestinians in these three places, Gaza, uh, the West Bank, Israel proper, and, well, I guess East, East Jerusalem uh, as well. Maybe you could say, call it four. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I do think, you know, and, and I want to be kind of deliberative here. The actual, like, you know, action on the ground, the scale of protests, the, the rocket fire from Gaza and Israel, like that may be de-escalated. You may have a ceasefire. Um but the, 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 what I want to call the political emotion and the political trajectory of the Palestinian cause, that definitely has, has turned a new page. It's going to be like a chess game right now, you know, which actors you have the U.S. and Israel um, kind of working to go back to the status quo. They speak about calm and ceasefire. You have the Palestinian kind of leadership also working on that front. 
President Mahmoud Abbas and so forth. You have the grassroots working in another direction. You have the... Probably. Uh, in any event, the discourse was moving in another way, direction. Now, is what we're seeing now... I mean, has that basically progressed for the last 10, 10 years, the last decade or so? Just more and more talk about rights, less and less attention, especially by younger Palestinians, to the possibility of a two-state solution and more and more emphasis on a one-state solution? Yes, you know, and, and significantly, you know, I would, I would just go and do a quick search on all the Palestinian, you know, spokespeople who have been on CNN, BBC and elsewhere over the last week, you know, speaking about this conflict. And um, they've all changed. The language has completely changed towards that rights-based approach. If you were to speak Arabic um, and you were to attend any of the 200 or so protests, that happened in the last week, listen to the chants. You'd also hear the same thing. That language has completely changed. And so, you know, the short answer is yes, um, this is the direction we've moved on. And it's been, I would say, like echoed and amplified by just in the last few months, the largest Israeli human rights organization um, or the most respected, one of the most respected, Beit Salem, came out and said that Israel's committing the crime of apartheid against Palestinians, you know, going beyond the, the like military occupation framework. Human Rights Watch also came out, you know, last month with that same statement. So I won't just say it's changing within Palestinian society. It's also changing within, you know, an international leading organizations. And now you have even, you know, AOC, uh, Congresswoman AOC coming up and saying Israel's an apartheid state. So yes, you know, 10 years ago when, when you and Matt Dust came, it seemed like a far-fetched dream that we would be where we are today. Now you have over 15 members of Congress, you know, speaking about this conflict in that way. And the Palestinian kind of new generation of leaders who are now the ones running the street, to be frank, who are also speaking in that language. Okay, but there are still pretty formidable obstacles, right? One of them... Well, one of them is that, uh, you know, 15 is more than zero, but less than, you know... Uh, a couple two hundred plus that it would take to be a majority of the house. The um, the uh, another is that if you ask Israelis what are the prospects for one state solution, I I don't know something like ninety percent of them or more just say, "Are you serious? We, it, we will never let that happen." I'm sure you've encountered that, right? I, I mean, I don't know if the number is ninety percent or what, but it's a very common uh, sentiment. And whereas you uh, you might say that, well, uh, you know, right, what's happened over the last week uh, for all the, the, the things to, uh, to lament and the deaths and so on, we are, we are seeing a new kind of consciousness among Palestinians that's auspicious and, and some new rumblings in the American political uh, system. Israelis are probably saying, you see why we can't have a one-state solution? They're firing rockets at us. Uh, Palestinians in, you know, who are citizens of Israel are fighting uh, with Israelis. And so uh, I, I, I mean, I can't predict how the politics will play out, but I would, you would know better than I what Israelis are likely to say in the wake of this. Seems to me they will be at least as determined as ever uh, to uh, prevent any movement toward a one-state solution 
and certainly a, a two-state solution, uh, you know, I think we probably both think is uh, is no longer realistic. But so, so what would you say to that? Yeah, the the kind of first misconception I, I want to just speak to here is it's you know a rights-based approach does not necessarily conclude with a one-state solution. And it can conclude with, you know, whatever, a type of federation can even conclude with a two-state solution, just not the type of two-state solution that's being talked about right now in the political sphere. Um, But actually, a a rights-based solution just means something founded on human dignity, a social contract that's founded on on basic equality and freedom and, and so forth. And you're right, though, to say that for a majority of Israelis, Speaking in that type of language, um, they would be against it. And, you know, Israelis that I've engaged with initially see it as a threat, right? And we need to remember here that for many Israelis, the the basic instinctive, um, like, sense of what Israel is to them is that you need a Jewish, you know, ethno-Jewish, like, nationalist state because we have been targeted and we will forever be targeted and this is the only way to be safe. So speaking about any other type of state, even if you say let's replace Israel with a country that looks more like America, you know, let's let's have the American constitution, they would say hell no, we want what we have now because that's the only way for us to be safe. Now what I have also seen are two interesting you know, the Israeli society, it's wrong to ever speak about it as like one unity, right? You, I've seen an interesting shift with Israelis, particularly on the left and kind of progressive, um, who are more and more beginning to understand, if not necessarily accept, that this is the future, that this is the ethical thing. It's still uncomfortable, and it, it takes a lot of bravery, but they recognize it and are moving in that direction. And equally, and this is why we're seeing the, the whole kind of disruption and, you know, Israel has had, I think, five elections in two years so far. You also see the rise of the far right um, in Israel. And those are individuals whose basic instinct is, yes, you know, we're going to either have to move to a state that's like that, where we're all equal, or we're going to have to kick out the Palestinians or increase our subjugation of them. And this is the debate, if the debate within Palestinian society is one state, two state, you know, a rights-based approach, the debate within Israeli society right now is a rights-based approach, two states, or the complete subjugation or removal of the Palestinian people. And so how we engage Israelis, I think for us as Palestinians, we have, you know, to be completely frank, we have spent a significant amount of our time dealing with the different forms of oppression that we face, that we haven't answered a crucial question we need to answer is how do we engage, you know, Israeli Jews to understand and believe in a better and more fair future, closer to the one that's that's the race-based one we're talking about. And how do you do that? Have you participated in any like forums or anything that could lead to that? Or I mean, how, how do you how do you go about doing that? Well, that's, you know, it's uh, it's tough, I have to say. I mean, I'll, I'll be frank. I've been speaking with a lot of wonderful, um, like, you know, Jewish Americans in particular, and some, some kind of Israelis who have gone beyond the kind of, you know, prosaic, like Zionist traditional beliefs. 
and, and engaged with them uh, deeply on this question. And I have to say, it's, it's going to be um, a kind of difficult conversation to have, a vulnerable conversation to have. It's, it's the type of conversation where a person has to rethink their basic assumptions, their basic instincts that they grew up on. Um, at the same time, honestly, I think there's what I've realized, surprisingly, is that people want to engage in that direction because people want an end to this just spiral of, of violence. And they want to be able to imagine, to radically reimagine a better future. And none of the solutions available now provide that to them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I can go into more details, but also suffice mm. to say that I'm hopeful. You know, I, I, hopeful doesn't mean I think it's going to be easy, but it means I think it's possible to to change a big chunk of Israeli society to believe in, in that type of future. Yeah, I, I certainly see, you know, the signs of a generational shift among American Jews. Uh, you have these younger organizations like, you know, If Not Now, for example, and uh, um, I mean, even J Street. But I mean, J Street is now starting to look conservative by comparison, right? I mean, I mean, eight years ago, J Street was kind of the thing uh, for progressive young Jews, and uh, and and I'm sure you know there's still a lot of engagement along those lines. But but if not now, is something I've become uh, more aware of. And just listening to young American Jews, you can see that that there's a difference. But are you sensing anything like that among Israeli Jews? Is there any kind of a clear generational a generational shift that's nearly as pronounced as seems to be the case in America? I mean, not not as pronounced as in America. I have to say, you know, not I haven't seen. I've seen small groups that are similar to, if not now, um, emerge in Israel, but. It's it's not the it's not the trend. It's not what it is in the U.S. Um, but I do think, you know, if you like, if you allow me to kind of nerd out, right? This is the exact type of problem um, I think you you speak about in in your kind of initial book, right? Non-zero, um, which is honestly still one of my favorite books. And God bless humans you. find, you know, I I honestly I honestly you know love it, and I go back to it often. Um, and, and I have to say, like, we're, we're in this type of situation, right, with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, where we need to find this, you know, the, the non-zero type of approach to, to move things forward. And what I'm seeing on the Israeli side right now is that you do have some Israelis, like I said, a small minority who, who are going in the if-not-now direction of, of thinking in those non-zero ways about how to engage with Palestinians. But if I'm to be completely frank, the bigger trend that I'm seeing on the Israeli society is connected to those groups that went down to the street uh, to kind of lynch Arabs. Um, and that's really scary. Like I, I, I need to emphasize just how terrifying that is because they, you know, if you're a Palestinian, they have more weapons, they have the police, they have the military behind them. And for, for many young Israelis, I think you have two things pulling you. Either you're being pulled into the like startup tech sector and then you can go to Silicon Valley or you can start a company and you can make a lot of money and you can kind of live a quasi American type life of like, you know, the Silicon Valley community, which is disconnected from politics. 
or you're being pulled into this far-right kind of proud boy mentality. And let's keep in mind, Israel's really influenced by U.S. politics. So the kind of rise of Trump, I think no society in the world supported President Trump and his policies more than Israeli society. And I think he actually created a kind of example for some of the political parties and, and leaders there of you know what to aspire to. And that's what's winning right now in terms of Israel's culture. Okay, let me uh, try to squeeze in one more question or two. I know you've got to go before long. Um, this is, in a way, you could say this is about, this is kind of a question about non-zero-sum dynamics. So uh, the way some people characterize the initial hostilities are like, this is good politics for Hamas, good politics for Bibi Netanyahu, right? You've got uh, you know, conflict tends to uh, create support for leaders. And that was uh, one way of of uh, looking at it. Now, do you can you kind of size up uh, Hamas politically from your perspective? I mean, is this good for them? Because, uh, you know, I, I think if you ask, uh, you know, Israel, well, why are you continuing to assault uh, um Gaza, you know, when when the rocket fire is such a modest threat, relatively speaking, you know, one answer you get, I think, is we want to make sure Hamas winds up regretting this. However politically tempting it may have been, we want to make sure they wind up regretting it. We've killed some senior Hamas leaders, but we just want to kind of rub it in. What is your take on what the uh, the political support will be uh, like for Hamas coming out of this? I mean, let's say it winds down within the next few days. And there are tentative signs that uh, Biden may be finally applying some pressure in that direction. Um, but uh, what, where would you say Hamas is uh, politically? You earlier suggested that, that they don't necessarily have uh, the hearts and minds of all Palestinian youth everywhere. You certainly suggested that about the West Bank political leadership, uh, Fatah and, and Abbas. Uh, so talk a little about the Palestinian politics of this as, as we emerge from the conflict, if we do. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, we're supposed to, we were supposed to have elections uh, for the Palestinian Legislative Council, basically our Congress, um, three days from now. It was set for May 22nd. And then Israel, kind of the, the Shabak, reportedly met with President Mahmoud Abbas and told him, don't have these elections, you'll likely lose. And I think they're right. He would have likely lost. And Hamas- And those had, would have included uh, Gaza and the West Bank? The electorate would be, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so, and Hamas had made a significant amount of concessions actually. So, you know, Hamas had initially wanted the elections to happen um, with presidential and legislative elections together on the same day. Um, Hamas wanted a number of things. I won't go into details to bore people, but Hamas made huge amounts of concessions to say, let's just have elections because Hamas is in a place right now where they don't want to run Gaza anymore. Um, you know, Gaza's under blockade. It's almost impossible for them to help people out on the ground there. And they realized it was a mistake to get, you know, to take control of Gaza for so long. Hamas also wants to be part of the Palestinian Liberation Organization because that gives it a certain level of representation internationally as part of the Palestinian politique. And that's why they decided to, to run in these elections 
even though they were designed basically for Fatah to win and Hamas to get second place. Now, President Abbas canceled those elections and Hamas ended up being stuck in, in you know, this place where they don't want to be, which is in control of Gaza. Also, Palestinians, and this is something I should have mentioned, there were 36 different electoral lists, so Palestinians were thirsty for political change, and that was silenced. And then everything that happened in Jerusalem that we spoke about, Sheikh Jarrah, those families that attack on the Aqsa, and people were calling out, keep in mind, Palestinians were calling out to Hamas and anyone globally saying, like, help us, you know, help us protect Al-Aqsa, help us protect Sheikh Jarrah. So when Hamas made the honestly symbolic gesture of saying when they heard people calling for their help, Hamas fired a rocket towards an Israeli settlement near Jerusalem that landed and like didn't hurt anybody. Um, but for, for a lot of Palestinians, I'll be frank, it was like, wow, somebody like Hamas has, you know, courage that they're now like, we called on them to help and they're trying to help. And then that's when Israel responded with bombing Gaza and killing 20 people, and Hamas responded with more rockets, and it cycled out of there. So, so, Hamas- so Israel had 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 bombed uh, Gaza before there was the massive uh, rocket launch from from uh, Hamas that actually overwhelmed at least some of the missile defenses. Yeah. So that you know that was the interesting thing, right? It's you know the Aqsa comes under attack. Hamas gives Israel an ultimatum of 6 p.m leave the Aqsa and allow the worshippers to worship or we're going to launch a rocket. 6 p.m. comes, nothing had changed. So Hamas launches this rocket. It hits nothing, basically. But for Israel, this is like, you know, Israel needs to, you know, show that it's strong and deterrent. So Israel responds to the Hamas rocket uh, by bombing Gaza, killing at the time about 20 people. And that's when Hamas then launched the massive barrage um, of rockets towards Israel. So that's that's the kind of cadence of events. And for a lot of Palestinians, I won't say all, but for a lot of Palestinians, it was like, you know, you can't really blame Hamas um, because, you know, we're, we're being bullied in Jerusalem. We needed someone to act. They kind of put a threat and told Israelis, hey, step back or we'll do this. And then Israel went overboard. And so I would say Hamas actually built up some credibility that it had lost in the last 10 years uh, by by engaging in this and also them showing that they could like step up to Israel and like, you know, again, put aside, I would put, you know, put aside Hamas's political beliefs, which, you know, neither you or I kind of believe in their their notion of what political Islam is. Right. And we don't believe in the tactics they use. But think about this just from this a technical notion of here you have this, you know, Gaza Strip, 2 million people, about 50% children under 18, 25% women, 90%, you know, of the water is toxic, they barely get electricity, and they're completely blockaded on all sides from Egypt and Israel, and yet, and they've gone through three wars, and yet they managed to build this, you know, even though it's, it's not significant, this, you know, armory of rockets. They managed to tell Israel, like, you mess with us, we're going to mess, you know, with you. Um, Whereas in the West Bank, the exact opposite has happened. The Palestinian leadership here has basically bent over backwards for Israel and cooperates with Israel security-wise. And the worst, you know, settlements have expanded, nothing has changed, people are still suffering. So you can see why people will, like, even if they disagree with Hamas's ideology, 
kind of have a level of how the hell did you develop these missiles that can now overwhelm Israel's Iron Dome and these submarines that can hit Israel's you know, oil fields and the Mediterranean when you've been under this blockade for so long? So, you know, that's that's kind of how people are, not everyone, but that's how some people are seeing it. And, now, I just want to add just one thing, Bob, which is to say there are also voices in Palestinian society that have said, you know, Hamas, um, why did you, like the, the protests that were happening in Jerusalem, the kind of organizing that was happening all across, you know, both uh, the West Bank and for Palestinians within Israel was a beautiful popular movement. And by launching your rocket, you've kind of stolen, you know, the, the winds from that popular movement. The world stopped talking about Sheikh Jarrah and now they're talking about Hamas and Israel. And so you've done a disservice to the cause. And that's, you know, again, Palestinians are not one entity. And that's the debate that's happening right now. Well, do you have a view on whether in the long run this will have been productive? I mean, you clearly think that the, the this kind of more unified, more evidently unified Palestinian consciousness is a good thing. And that has uh, accompanied this. I mean, I have no way of knowing whether it would have shown up in the absence of the conflict. But um, but but. Well, well, there's that question I have for you, and then a related one, and you can answer whatever you want. But, but is that? Do you think um, that that Hamas's political gains, Hamas will have seen net political gains in its support among Palestinians, even with the devastation that has now been wreaked on Gaza, and possibly more days or even weeks of devastation. Um, in other words, I'm kind of saying, do you, do you think Israel is wrong to calculate that they can erase uh, Hamas's gains if they wreak enough devastation on uh, on Gaza? Yeah, I mean, like, let, let me put it this way, you know, Israel assumed that by seeking to kind of domesticate Palestinians in Israel by changing their education systems, by you know, treating them as second-class citizens by a million policies that it would be able to wipe out. And this is actually like written Israeli policy to wipe out their sense of Palestinian identity, right? You know, Israel always tells even journalists, don't call them Palestinians in Israel, call them Arab Israeli, right? They wanted to wipe out their identity. That completely failed. Israel assumed in the wars in 2014 that, you know, killing 2,000 people devastating Gaza, including 500 children, would turn people against um, Hamas. And that didn't happen. Israel assumed that in the West Bank, again, you know, it could get Palestinians with some kind of little benefits here and there. It can continue to expand settlements and continue to give the Palestinian elite leadership benefits. Like Israel, Israel, I think, needs to understand at the core what we as Palestinians want is not a little bit more cash, is not someone to you know stop bombing us. It's basic kind of human dignity and, and freedom. And whenever Israel violates that, like it, it's doing so now significantly in Gaza, whenever Israel attacks us um, and, and kills so many people, like you know, 60 children, I believe, are now the death toll is 60 children in Gaza out of 200 uh, people killed in total. Like if you've pulled your children from underneath the rubble, you know what families are doing, Bob, just to for you to get a sense of what's happening in Gaza. 
if you have, let's say you have children and you have a sister or a brother who have children, let's say each one of you has four children, you're trading two of your children so that if one family gets bombed, at least two children from the other family will survive. And even if those families hate Hamas, they're being bombed by Israel and they're going to stand with Hamas because they feel like that's the body that's now protecting them. And so Israel's policies backfire towards it. But I think the the last thing I'll add is the conversation always seems to be like, is Israel doing X to harm Hamas? Is Israel doing X for its security? And that's the wrong question. That's Israel's talking point. But the real reasons why Israel's executing all the policies it's doing is it wants to maintain complete control and subjugation of the Palestinian people under its authority. Doesn't want anyone to raise their heads and say, we want freedom, we want something else. And so if you think about it that way, then yeah, bombing and killing civilians, you know, mowing the lawn as Israel calls it, that is effective, you know, and that is Israel's goal. But when Israel does that, at a certain point, Palestinians get, you know, um, terrified, despondent, they have to rebuild and, and Israel can prolong its control of Palestinian society. And I think Israel knows that what they're doing won't destroy Hamas, it won't weaken Hamas, but it will prolong the subjugation of the Palestinian people. And that's their real goal. Okay, final question. Uh, do you do you think, if, if it is the case that their goal is in some sense a continued subjugation of Palestinians, and if uh, indeed, and I'm not sure you've quite said this, but if indeed there, there is a lot of grassroots support in Israel for that, do you think that a certain amount or a lot uh, of uh, or most of that grassroots support is driven ultimately by fear? I mean, uh, of what happens if if they let go, so to speak. I mean, you certainly hear this from Israelis. They will start talking about the second intifada, uh, which, unlike the first intifada, involved suicide bombing and 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 all this violence that terrified them, and so on. Um, I mean, I would think it would be good news if fear is behind this in a certain sense, right? Because then, if you, as challenging as it may be to allay the fears, that's at least uh, you know something you could try. But what is what is your view about what ultimately drives what you've described as a desire to uh, subjugate? I, I do think it's, you know, a deep sense of fear. And I, and I do want to say it's like it's it's generational trauma as well. Like we, you know, we need to be fair here. And if you know the history of the Jewish people, the, the, pub, the pogroms in Eastern Europe, the Holocaust, the anti-Semitism, which, you know, even, even what was it two years ago, I believe in Pittsburgh, the attack on the synagogue with 10 people killed, you know, anti-Semitism is real and it exists. Um, and, and so there's that historical trauma. And then, you know, what do, I think the Israeli mentality today is, you know, we've had our boots on the necks of the Palestinians for now 70 years, where we have, you know, been just stomping on them. And what happens if we remove our boot, you know, I think, you know, and I've heard this, if we if we remove it and we let the Palestinians stand up and look us to the eye, like the, the only human response they can imagine from any Palestinian is that we would want to punch them back, that we would want to put our boots on their necks for the next 70 years like they did to ours. And, you know, that that fear is is real, I would say. Now, I also think it's it's unjustified fear 
And I also think this is the thing. If you have your boot on someone's neck, like if you had your boot on my neck, Bob, and no matter how much I told you, just Bob, let me go. I promise I'm not going to do anything to you. Just let me go and so forth. You'd think a million times before you'd like step off my neck. And that's where I think the, the Israeli subconsciousness is right now. And that's the challenge for Palestinians is I don't think we can beg, you know, for the boot to be lifted off our neck. We have to stand up and face the Israelis. And then we can say, you know what? We have decided that we are not going to be you. We are not going to do to you what you have done to us. We're going to move forward. Um, and that's what I think we need the world to, to help us do is get that boot off of our neck. And on the other hand, you know, and this is maybe another conversation we can have and go deeper in, Bob, is how do you, you know, how do you defeat fear? Um, you know, there, there are many ways to do it. And I think it's worth discussing in depth. But I want to ask you, like, how would you do it? Like, you know, put yourselves in our place. What would you do? Um, I don't, it's challenging. I mean, I remember what I was thinking uh, when I was in the West Bank uh, 10 or 11 years ago. I was thinking I would, and I think you actually got involved in some of this kind of activism later, at least it was somewhat like this, but I, I was saying I would just uh, try to get as many Palestinians as possible to gather in the largest marches possible and say, look, all we want is the vote. Like, we just deserve to vote. And, you know, it, it, it's um, it's funny. You would get a certain amount of pushback from Palestinians who would say, no, that's like, I think the phrase was like, that's like normalizing the occupation, right? Does that make sense? In other words, that's saying you want to participate in the Israeli political system. And I was saying like, yeah, but look, if you get the vote, first of all, this would be generate huge international sympathy and and support. If this is the way the international community saw Palestinian activism, right, uh, th that would generate a lot of support. And then if that culminates in you getting the vote, well, you will have enough say in the political system that, you know, eventually you will no longer to think, have to think of it as an Israeli imposed political system. And that's assuming, you know, things work out well and, and but but. That's what I was saying at the time. Now, I know that you uh, were involved in organizing something kind of similar. But, uh, you know, the, I've referred to these uh, highways in the uh, West Bank that basically Palestinians can't use. And there were, there were, at least at the time, there were buses, right, that Palestinians, I think, couldn't ride or something, right? And you organized uh, protests that were meant to be reminiscent, I think, of the Freedom Rider uh, stuff in the civil rights movement uh, in, the, in the United States. And I don't know, how did that go? But but anyway, that was my thinking at the time. I, I I would say it's a very complex problem because you've got all these actors and you've got, uh, you know, uh, Gaza with, you know, it's it's very complicated. <laughs> but, go, but, but anyway, what do you think of any of that? No, I mean, I think like, you know, I, I think that push is, is definitely part of the like larger parcel to achieve freedom, justice, and dignity, like the new social contract. I do think, you know, the we will still be faced with the same type of fear that you spoke to about the one state solution, you know, which is, you know, if you're asking to vote what type, if Palestinians become the majority, what type of political system they'll create. And so I, to, to a certain extent, I do believe we want to 
move in the direction you're speaking of, which is a kind of democratic system where everyone's represented. I also, though, would add, um, and this is relatively new in terms of the conversation, the idea of decolonization. Because one thing we saw in South Africa, right, is um, because we're speaking actually with a lot of South African leaders and activists, former ANC organizers. And what they tell us is, they tell us where they succeeded, which is the political rights game, which is what you're speaking to, of getting the equal vote. And they're also explaining to us where they significantly failed, which is economic rights. And they're talking about the persistence of kind of certain colonial economic inequalities in South Africa to this day, where you have you know, some of the African you know, black elite joining in that small economic club, but the rest of society is staying under control. What we don't want to do in Palestine in terms of you know, what you're speaking to is we don't want to repeat the mistake of South Africa and make it just about you know, uh, the, the political vote. So I think it is more complex. I think you know, I'd love to go you know, more, deeply into this um, because it's it is the conversation this is what I want to say like we if we had more time this is the conversation on the street in Palestine right now how do we solve for these problems and although they're difficult the one thing I will add is if we actually succeed in in answering these questions I don't think they'll just serve Palestine and Israel I think they'll serve the broader Middle East I think they'll serve and kind of transforming how humanity thinks about these conflicts because we're not the only ones facing them here that would be nice and it, and it would be great to have another conversation with you uh, so let's do resume this I'll let you um, get to I guess you're going to the hospital next um, and uh, and uh, keep us keep us posted let let's stay in touch tell us what your twitter handle is for people who want to follow you on twitter uh yes it's uh and i'm definitely glad to continue this conversation and thank you for all you do first of all my twitter handle is fadi f-a-d-i-q-u-r-a-n um th- there's one thing I, I would like to end this call actually with which is Palestinians, especially now, if you're on the news, I think we're we're seen as numbers, right? We speak about 60 kids killed, 200 acts, 50,000 people displaced. I just spoke about four people who were killed at protests that I'm going to see their families at the hospital right now. But every single one of those people is someone, they have a name, they had a dream, they had a future. And um, I think we should just start saying their names and thinking about Palestinians as people, that that's who we are. Um, the news doesn't do a good job at that, but I hope we can learn to do so ourselves. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Fadi. Let's do check in before long and, and see how things are going. Thank you. Take care.